This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The United States is entering its third COVID winter with no end to the pandemic in sight. There is a loud minority of vaccine-averse Americans and a dangerous number of anti-science politicians cynically manipulating that for power. At the same time, the mental health of Americans is entering its own crisis from the stresses of the pandemic. Our guest today is the Surgeon General of the United States, Vice Admiral Vivek Murthy, whose job it is to help navigate these dangerous waters and keep all of us healthy. I know sometimes when you read the news, it can seem like this pandemic is never going to end. But a couple of things I want to say very clearly. Number one, this pandemic will end. The Delta variant of the coronavirus has exposed global inequalities in access to vaccines. While many rich countries have vaccinated most of their populations, poorer nations are struggling to obtain doses. In the best of times, mental health and illness often are underfunded and undertreated in the American healthcare system. Those concerns are especially magnified now during this extended period of self-isolation, quarantine, and shutdown. The U.S. Surgeon General has issued a new advisory on a growing youth mental health crisis, warning that depression and anxiety symptoms in young people have doubled worldwide during the pandemic. Hi, I'm Vivek Murthy. I'm the dad of two young children. I'm a doctor and I'm the Surgeon General of the United States. And I care most about creating a world where our kids and really all people have a strong foundation for happiness, for good health, and for deep fulfillment. Sorry, not sorry. Dr. Murphy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I suspect a lot of my listeners don't really even know the role of the Surgeon General. So can we just start off by you telling us a little bit about your job. Thanks, Alyssa. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation together. So my job as Surgeon General is to really do two things. And I should just say, for all those who don't know what the Surgeon General does, please don't feel bad. When I was a kid, I didn't really know what the Surgeon General did. I just knew that he was a man with a big white beard that I saw on TV talking about tobacco and HIV. And that was my predecessor, as it turns out, C. Everett Coop. But the job of the Surgeon General actually is twofold. Uh, one is the role that is public-facing, and that's to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to make sure people in our country have information they need about health so that they can take care of themselves and their families. That could be information about a present-day crisis like COVID-19. It could be about something that's a longer-term challenge for us, like e-cigarettes or the opioid epidemic. 
but that's one of my jobs. And the other job of the Surgeon General is to oversee one of the eight uniformed services in the U.S. government. And people are familiar with the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. There's another uniformed service that's purely dedicated to health, and that's the U.S. Public Health Service Commission Corps. And it's a group of 6,000 officers that include doctors and nurses and physical therapists and pharmacists and others. And we deployed these officers around the country during times of emergency. We sent officers to New York during 9-11, for example, to help support healthcare systems. During COVID-19, we've sent thousands of officers around the country to help vaccinate people, to help support hospitals and local public health departments. So those are the two main jobs of the Surgeon General. It's an exciting job. It's supposed to be a role that's independent, uh, which means that the job is not about politics. You're appointed by a president, but your highest responsibility and fidelity is to science and the public interest. We are talking in the middle of December. That's when we're recording this episode. And less than two weeks ago, we discovered our first few cases of the Omicron variant in the United States. And it's already about 3% of new cases. So I'm wondering how you feel, how dangerous is this new variant and what do we need to do to stop it? I completely understand how frustrating and tiring it can feel two years into this pandemic to still be dealing with COVID-19. So if you're feeling that way out there, just please know you're not alone. It's a normal reaction to something I think that a lot of us are feeling. But I actually think that this is not March 2020 in the sense that we have more tools to protect ourselves now than we did at the beginning of this pandemic. And I, I want to just name some of those up front because it's just important to keep in mind. And then let's talk about where we are with Omicron. Beginning of the pandemic, one of the big things we didn't have is we didn't have vaccines. And we know that the vaccines have been remarkably good at protecting us, not just against infection, but most, uh, mostly against worst impacts of COVID-19, getting hospitalized and dying from the virus. The vaccines have been remarkably helpful in protecting against those two. But we also have other things that like we've learned, for example, that if you wear a good mask that fits you well, that it can actually do a lot to help reduce your risk of infection. We've learned that you can use testing, especially the rapid tests that are available, as a way to reduce the risk of gathering with family and friends. And a lot of schools are using those tests to actually reduce the risk of kids uh, coming to school sick. We've learned also that ventilation actually makes a huge difference. It turns out that if you're in a well-ventilated space indoors or if you're gathering with people outdoors, your risk of spreading the virus is much, much lower than if you're in a small enclosed space with poor ventilation. A reason I mentioned all these tools is because it was using these tools that so many families gathered over Thanksgiving, which is something that many families didn't do last year. And so using a combination of getting vaccinated, getting using testing, getting together in places that were well ventilated and using masks, people were able to see their loved ones. So finally, let's talk about Omicron for a minute. You know, we've seen that in South Africa and in the United Kingdom, that this new variant of COVID-19 has risen really fast. And it seems to be spreading rapidly, probably for two reasons. One, because it, by nature, seems to intrinsically be more contagious, uh, if you will. And we've seen that before. We saw that the Delta variant, which is a variant that's a predominant one right now in the U.S., was more contagious than the one before, it, which is called the Alpha variant. And that Alpha variant, was more contagious than the one that preceded it, the one that we were dealing with much of 2020. But there's also probably an element of the of Omicron that evades some of the protections we have in our immune system, both through the vaccine and through prior infection. And so that's probably what's enabling it to spread so fast. The open question about Omicron is, does it cause more severe disease uh, than some of the 
other variants we've been dealing with. Now, there's some promising signs there that it may not. In South Africa, they in fact saw that the hospitalization rates were lower uh, with Omicron than with other variants. There's still more data that we're figuring out there. The Omicron variant appears to result in fewer hospitalizations than other COVID strains. This is according to a trio of studies. Researchers in Scotland found Omicron was associated with a two-thirds lower risk of hospitalization compared with the Delta variant. But Omicron was 10 times more likely to infect people who had already had COVID. The data really add to findings from South Africa showing that people are 80% less likely to be hospitalized if they catch it compared with other variants. The last piece that's important to know is how our vaccine against Omicron. And there's some good news here, which is that even though uh, there is a reduction in protection that we get from our vaccines with Omicron compared to other variants, if you get both doses of your mRNA vaccines and your booster on top of that, you actually still have really high levels of protection. And even for those who are not yet boosted, even though there are greater risks for getting infected, they still have a pretty high level of protection against the worst outcomes of COVID, which are hospitalization and death. So the bottom line is this, our vaccines, even though they're less potent uh, against Omicron than other variants, they still work to protect you against the worst of COVID. And if you get boosted, they help to prevent a mild and moderate infection at a pretty good rate too. So that's why we've been encouraging people to go out there, get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated, get boosted if you're not boosted, and continue to wear your masks in public indoor spaces because that can help reduce the spread. I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between transmission and infection severity. So can you just explain how people are still protected by the vaccine, even if they can catch COVID? Absolutely. Let me give you an analogy here. Let's talk about seatbelts for a moment. So all of us know that seatbelts can save your life. That's why we wear them when we get in the car. Now, if you get into an accident, and you're wearing your seatbelt, you might get bruised, right, over your shoulder where the seatbelt is. But again, there's a much greater chance that your life will be saved. And in that case, the seatbelt, and somebody might look at that and say, the seatbelt didn't work because I got bruised in my shoulder. And you say, no, hold on. The seatbelt did the most important thing it was supposed to do, which was to save your life. And there's a very similar thing with the vaccine. The most important job of the vaccine is to save your life. And that's what we found it's been remarkably effective at doing. And we even with people, with, even with Omicron, we're, we're finding that the protection you have against that worst part of COVID, which is that it could cost you your life, the protection against death is still really high uh, with the vaccine. But there are still people who may develop what are the equivalent of bruises that you got from the seatbelt. And I would think of those as mild infections. So some people are going to get mild infections, even though they got vaccinated. They're still, you're less likely to get that mild infection if you're vaccinated versus not. But again, it's not a sign that the vaccine doesn't work at all right? The vaccine's primary job is to save your life. And it's been doing that really well. So that's why when you hear in the news that somebody had a breakthrough infection or that there were a cluster of breakthrough infections that are found, it doesn't mean that the vaccine's not working. Every vaccine's going to have a little bit of leak, if you will. There are going to be some people who still get mild infections, even though that's less likely if they're vaccinated. So that's how I would think about it is bottom line is if you're vaccinated, your chances of getting any infection is lower. Your chances of, in particular, dying or being hospitalized from the, vir- uh, the virus are much, much lower than if you were unvaccinated. Sign up. 
Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. There's just so much misinformation out there. I think the heartbreaking part of it is that it seems to be intentionally fueled for political reasons. So how can the Surgeon General's office fight this? It's such an important point, Elisa. There is a lot of misinformation out there, and it's costing people their lives. There's no other way to put it. Because one of the things we've seen that's different now compared to the misinformation that was floating around over the last 100, 200, 300 years, as long as man's been alive, is that the speed and scale and sophistication with which this misinformation is spreading is truly unprecedented. And a lot of it has been enabled by technology platforms, particularly social media, which enable the spread. Now, I'm not saying that the platforms are intentionally trying to spread misinformation, but people are using them to spread misinformation. And the platforms need to do a lot more to step up and be accountable for making their spaces safer. And what can our office do? Well, our office in July actually issued a Surgeon General's advisory on the topic of health misinformation to call the country's attention to the fact that this was a big danger and to lay out some concrete steps that all of us could take in society to address it. So we laid out steps that individuals could take, that technology companies could take, that healthcare workers, educators, government, and other stakeholders could take, because it turns out there's an important role for all of us. Take the individual, for example, Alyssa. Part of the way misinformation spreads is that people share it right online because they think that they're helping their friends and their family members, but they're actually spreading misinformation. So one of the things that we've advised people to do is to raise the bar on what you share. Is what you're sharing coming from a scientifically credible source? Like, for example, is it verified by your doctors or coming from your local health department, from your children's hospital, from the CDC? Now, if it's not, you may still be unsure if it's credible or not. And if you're not sure, then don't share. That's the bottom line. Before we would just share anything willy-nilly unless we thought it was definitively wrong. This is a time where we've got to realize we've got to raise the bar and only share for sure something's coming from a credible source. But one of the biggest things that I want to point out to you, which is so, so important, Alyssa, is that we need to mobilize our medical community to come out there to use their voice to speak to what's true and what's not. Because a lot of people, their local doctors and their nurses, the people in their community who care for them. But finally, I want to just come back to the technology companies for a moment here, because unless those platforms step up and make their spaces safer and reduce the amount of misinformation on their site, It's going to be pretty tough to get a full handle on the spread of misinformation. The unvaccinated are responsible for their own choices. But those choices have been fueled by dangerous misinformation on cable TV and social media. You know, these companies and personalities are making money by peddling lies and allowing misinformation that can kill their own customers and their own supporters. It's wrong. It's immoral. I call on the purveyors of these lies and misinformation to stop it. Stop it now. That's why what we've called for publicly for the companies to do is, number one, be transparent with the public and with independent researchers so people understand how much misinformation is spreading and who's being targeted. We're also asking them to go after people who are super spreaders of misinformation on these sites because they're causing harm. 
And we're asking them also to think about how they're designing their sites. So some of the algorithms on these sites are designed to give you more of what you consume. And in some ways, that can be good. If I like cat videos and I watch a couple of cat videos, maybe it serves me up more cat videos. And I do like cats. I grew up with cats. So, you know, here's a little shameless plug for all the cat lovers out there. But the truth is that if you encounter misinformation, you consume it and the algorithm serves up more misinformation to you, that only solidifies you in a position that's not informed by fact. And that could be harmful to your health. You could share that with other people. So this is why I think the platforms, the technology companies have a critical responsibility here. I'm not talking about legal responsibility. I'm talking about financial responsibility. I'm talking about a moral responsibility to do the right thing to protect people from harm. Well, speaking of moral responsibility, I want to touch on something that is very near and dear to my heart because I'm a UNICEF ambassador and I have been since 2003. But Part of the reason this pandemic continues globally is, you know, we've heard about vaccine discrimination. And we know in the beginning that rich countries basically hoarded more than 90 percent of the available vaccine doses through to next year. So when you talk about vaccines and all of the tools that you mentioned, masks, testing, ventilation, How can we end the pandemic if we don't make sure the entire globe has the tools to end the pandemic? Alyssa, we can't. This is a global pandemic, and global pandemics require a global response. We've got to make sure that people all across the world are vaccinated, because when there's uncontrolled spread of the virus in one part of the world, new variants develop, and those spread all over the world. We've seen that now multiple times. And that's actually why I think that All countries, especially those that are well-resourced, have a responsibility to do everything they can to help vaccinate the rest of the world. And that actually means a few things. It means, number one, making sure that the supply of vaccine is there. And one of the things the United States has been doing, for example, is, number one, donating vaccine. So we've committed 1.2 billion doses for the rest of the world. Hundreds of millions of those doses have shipped out already to countries everywhere. It requires actually improving and scaling up manufacturing capacity. And not just manufacturing capacity in the U.S., but in other countries as well. So that not just during this pandemic, but during the next pandemic, we are ready and poised to produce vaccine all over uh, the world and not just dependent on a couple of countries. But there's also to do that, it requires tech transfer. It requires that the companies uh, themselves that currently have the knowledge of how to produce these vaccines to share that knowledge with other companies and including companies uh, in other countries. Now, the United States and, and President Biden actually have been pushing for the, a waiver, if you will, so that intellectual property protections that have kept that knowledge away from other countries and other companies, that those protections are waived because this is a pandemic. and We've got to pull out the stops and get life-saving information to everyone who can produce a vaccine. But we've got to do more to push the companies to actually transfer the knowledge. This is not actually an area where the U.S. can make that decision alone. It has to be It's a decision that has to be made collectively with other countries. But until then, the companies, we're pushing them to voluntarily get this information and the know-how, if you will, about how to make the vaccines to other countries, because we can't scale up this production fast enough. Now, the good news is we've actually been able as a globe to vaccinate billions and billions of people. And that's extraordinary. But keep in mind that we've realized now that booster shot is important against Omicron, which means that we need even more for those people who may have gotten one dose or two doses of the vaccine, we've got to get them that third dose and make sure that they're boosted. Finally, I'll just say this, Alyssa, most people focus on the supply part in terms of getting global vaccinations, but there's more than supply that has to happen, right? There's, you need to have the infrastructure so the vaccines can be stored. You need to have people trained 
uh, to deliver and administer the vaccine. And then you also need to have public education campaigns that are supported and funded because it turns out the U.S. is not the only country dealing with misinformation. Countries across the world are. South Africa, for example, at the time that Omicron arose, South Africa actually had an abundance of supply of vaccine. The challenge they had was that demand was low. And why was demand low? Well, in part because there was a lot of misinformation they were dealing with. We were speaking and continue to speak to the uh, public health experts in South Africa. And this is what they were telling us. But all this just to say that supporting that full range of actions is important. The United States actually has put hundreds of millions of dollars into supporting those efforts in, in, in the African continent, including the you know, public education efforts, sort of infrastructure for storage, the mobile units, training uh, people to be administrators of, vac- of the vaccines. That's going to be important, but we've got to do that at scale. And we need more countries to also step up and do more of that. Because again, the faster we vaccinate people, the quicker we get to end of the pandemic. That's what we've learned over the last year. Let's look at the facts. Close to 50% of the vaccines produced went to wealthy countries, although those countries make up 16% of the world's population. Currently, 64% of high-income countries are fully vaccinated. But if you look at low-income countries, 3% are fully vaccinated, with about 7% receiving at least one dose. Wealthy countries promised more access to vaccines, pledging 1.98 billion donated doses to poorer countries. However, the World Health Organization says 70% of the world's population needs to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. That equals about 10 to 11 billion doses if two doses are given per person. I lived in South Africa for three months in 2000. I also, I was in India for three weeks, six months after the tsunami. And it is not surprising to me that these new variants popped up in South Africa and India because what we don't realize is really how people live in the middle of nowhere with very little access to internet, to phones, even to electricity. And so it becomes, I think, the work of organizations like like UNICEF who have the infrastructure already in place, who do these education campaigns. It just becomes incredibly important to get the vaccine from the tarmac into people's arms. And I just don't, as someone who has traveled the world on behalf of, I, I don't know how we come out of this if we don't start taking vaccinating the world very seriously and get in there and do what we have to do. Because it just feels like these new variants are going to pop up in these places, in these areas where people live on less than a dollar a day. No, you're right. And this is a challenge that we're facing. I've spent a lot of time in India myself. My family's from there. We, I've there for small chunks of time, worked there and interacted a lot with the healthcare system. And I, I look, when you have such a large population in India, including a significant portion of the population that's in rural areas and under-resourced, you've got to contend with a lot of challenges from the logistics of getting the vaccine to people to the misinformation that's spreading. Now, India has sent quite a remarkable job in terms of the number of people that they vaccinate, and it's truly extraordinary. But if you keep in mind the fact that we need to be able to both create the supply and deploy that kind of vaccine on an ongoing basis to people potentially, for example, if there's a scenario where we need, let's say, an annual booster, we don't know if we do or not, but if there was a world in which we needed that, we need to have a well-oiled machine, if you will, in countries across the world where we can, we know exactly how to get that to people. We've got the apparatus set up to store the vaccine, we've got the people to deliver it, We've got the information machine so that people can get accurate info about the vaccine and that are not misled. So 
that's a challenge that we're facing as a, as, as a globe. But the challenging thing, Alyssa, is we learned this during Ebola, right, in 2014, that the health of one country affects the health of all countries. And unless we're investing in the healthcare infrastructure of countries across the world, uh, we're going to subject ourselves to the risk of having more pandemics that could have been caught earlier, but weren't because we didn't invest in having the infrastructure and detection systems that we needed. And nowhere is safe until everywhere is safe. You also served in this role under President Obama. And I'm wondering what were some of the national health priorities then and how has COVID changed them? Actually, so that feels like a different world <laughs> in some ways. Everything was so different. But interestingly, a lot of the underlying challenges that we don't talk about as much because they've been overshadowed by COVID are still there. So when I was serving in the Obama administration, there were some outbreaks that, that, we, that I was uh, working on with the rest of our team. Those included Ebola and Zika. But the broader challenges I was focused on included the opioid epidemic, which continues to be a crisis in our country. Also, I was focused on e-cigarettes. There was a rapid rise of young people using e-cigarettes, which are tobacco products, during those years. And there's still an alarming number who are using those products today. But I was working on that issue as well. The third issue, which was increasingly on my radar, and we were starting to more work more and more on, was the issue actually of emotional well-being, and particularly the challenge of loneliness and isolation that many people are struggling with. That issue around loneliness and isolation, which it turns out is a public health threat and a very common one that people experience, is an issue I spent much of my time after uh, my first stint as Surgeon General focusing on. I wrote about it. I spoke about it. I did research on it. It was a, a topic of great interest to me. And when I think about now, uh, Alyssa, even though COVID-19 is on our, on our radar, our front and center all the time, the other areas I've continued to work on actually are connected to mental health and well-being. And I include the challenges of loneliness and isolation among those. But we have had a mental health crisis in our country for a long time. Sometimes people look at the numbers and they say, well, it's all the pandemic. It's not all the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic has certainly made things worse for many people, no doubt, including our children. But people were struggling long before this. A couple of weeks ago, Alyssa, I issued a Surgeon General's advisory on youth. I know. And I was so, thank you for doing that. I was so very grateful to hear someone in your position make it so that it is a crisis and say that out loud. Yeah, well, thank you, Alyssa. And I was partly thinking about that, not just as Surgeon General, but as a doctor and as a dad. I think about my own children. I've seen how the pandemic has impacted them. But I'll tell you, one of the scariest things, Alyssa, for me was that when I was doing research on this was just understanding how bad things were before the pandemic. The fact that in 2019, one in three high school students were reporting that they felt persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, that's a massive red flag for us. And that was a 40% increase, Alyssa, over the prior decade. In July, Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC at the time, said suicides and drug overdoses surpassed the death rate for COVID-19 among high school students. Insurance claims for intentional self-harm among people 13 to 18 was up 90% nationally in March compared to the year before, and almost 100% in April. The CDC says from April to October of 2020, emergency room mental health visits for children 5 to 11 years old jumped 24% compared to the same period in 2019, and 31% among adolescents. Over 20% of school-aged children have experienced worsened mental or emotional health since March 2020, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Is that social media? What do you think that, what, are, what have you learned about why that is? Yeah, it's a great question. And it turns out, not surprisingly, it's not a single thing, but there are a few critical things. One is that 
a lot of our kids have been struggling silently with loneliness and isolation, which increases your risk for depression and anxiety. We also know that for many young people that they've been operating in an environment where simply talking about these issues and these struggles is taboo and stigmatized. And what happens when you're struggling and you can't express it is two bad, two critical things happen. One is you can't get help. But two, you spiral further and further downward and you feel actually more isolated because you feel like there's something wrong with you. You're ashamed and you withdraw further. And that's probably the worst thing that can happen to you when you're struggling uh, with your mental health is to get isolated because that can make things worse. But there's, a, I think, a, a couple other broader factors here. You raise social media. And I think while some young people benefit uh, from using social media, there are others who have been harmed in terms of their mental health and well-being. And it has to do in part with you know, the underlying personality of an individual and their mental health history. It has to do with how they're using social media as well. It also has to do with the balance, right? If you're using social media to the point where it crowds out your in-person interaction, right, where, and other meaningful activities in your life, then that could be a net negative for you. The challenge, uh, Alyssa, is that we don't understand enough about the impact of social media on our kids because we actually need more data that the companies, in some cases, have internally that tells us, tells them how their platforms are impacting uh, kids. And we need to understand that. Independent researchers need to have access to that data because we need to know which kids are at risk. And then we also need to be able to know what kind of activities or engagement with social media puts them uh, at risk. There's one last thing I'll mention, Alyssa, which is actually broad, but I actually think it's perhaps one of the more insidious factors that we've been dealing with for a long time. And that is a cultural factor, which is that many young people today are growing up in sort of a media environment and a culture that constantly tells them that they're not good enough. They're not smart enough. They're not good looking enough. They're not wealthy enough or popular enough, constantly making them feel that they are not enough, that they lack something. We also know that when kids hear that message again and again, it erodes their self-esteem and their sense of self. And one of the most important things we can do for a child's mental health and overall well-being is to give them a strong and healthy sense of self. For them to come through childhood knowing that they have worth, that they have value, is so incredibly important, right? It gives them resilience. It gives them a foundation for happiness. It lets them know that who they are is not defined by the things they have or what's on their resume. It's defined by their human qualities that they were born with, their ability to be kind, to be compassionate, to give and receive love. That is what makes us truly valuable as human beings. But the culture in which many of us grow up doesn't tell us that. And the messages we receive, whether it's through traditional social media, often tell us quite the opposite. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. But I also think that we have eight out of 10 families who are living paycheck to paycheck. 
And I think when you see your family struggling to make ends meet, and it does become about jobs and the stress of of work and bills and putting food on the table, I think that young people aren't really, especially those who are in poverty situations, poverty is trauma. And I think when we expect young people to find that self-worth when families are struggling every single day or not around because they're working for jobs, I think it's, it becomes really cyclical. And then you add on top of it everything else that we're going through as far as, yes, social media. And by the way, likes set off dopamine in, in a child's brain and in an adult's brain. How does that impact their serotonin levels and what biologically are they going through that might be it might be manifesting the depression and anxiety but also think about what these young people have to go through now between these these lockdown drills in school i remember my kid coming home at 3 years old in in preschool and saying mommy they gave me a lollipop today because we had a lockdown drill and they wanted me to be quiet so you you add all of this and then the isolation and the pandemic and the fact that those who are dealing with domestic violence at home are probably dealing with more of it through this isolation lisa let me just say on that this is so important because these are this is a category of something we talked about in the report that's driving mental health issues among kids that we think of as systemic risk factors so all of the things that you're mentioning are not things where we can just say to a child, you just need to buck up and be stronger, right? Because these are systemic issues. And so what's in that category? Poverty is one of the most powerful stressors uh, that you know can be visited upon a child or a family. And it's really hard to think about school when you're hungry, right? Food insecurity affects so many children uh, as a result of poverty. And we saw that exacerbated during the pandemic because a lot of kids were actually getting free and reduced lunches at school. And when they weren't able to go to school, that food supply was taken away. I mean, it's heartbreaking, but you think about poverty, you think about systemic racism and the racial reckoning that happened over the last two years in particular. You think about the threat of climate change, which is really present in the minds of many young people and worries them, rightly so. You think about violence, right? Particularly gun violence, but many children are living with the reality of violence in their day-to-day life. They're reading about it in the newspaper. They're wondering if it's safe to be in school. These are stressors that weigh down children. Children who lived within four to six blocks of a shooting were more likely to visit the ER for mental health-related symptoms. Dr. Aditi Vasan is a pediatrician at CHOP and the lead writer of the study. It looked at 2,629 shootings and the more than 42,000 pediatric emergency room visits within two months after the shooting. Two weeks after a shooting, kids who were who lived within an eighth of a mile, so two to three blocks of the shooting, and had 1.8, almost 1.9 times the odds of coming in to the ER. Those mental health symptoms could involve signs of anxiety or depression and aren't even across races. Gun violence disproportionately affects Black children. As I to say, when you grew up as well, we didn't have these kind of active shooter drills. We were not worried as much about issues like climate change. Like at that time, we had less in some ways to worry about. I'm not saying lives were perfect or the past was perfect. There's plenty wrong uh, with the world when, when we were growing up. But my point is that there is a new and different set of stressors kids today are experiencing. And that has an impact uh, on their mental health and well-being. Because what's different also between now and 30 years ago is you can't just turn out 
or to turn off rather the bad things that are happening around the world. It is coming at kids through so many channels, uh, through so many different ways. And so all of that impacts how they feel about themselves, each other, and the world. And that's why it's such an important part of their mental health. Not only our young people, but I have to thank teachers, also medical professionals, right? Our nurses, our doctors. I feel like everyone is really struggling with this mental health crisis, which has been exacerbated by COVID. My question is, if we don't do something about this crisis, what do you think will be the long-term effects on our nation? That's the right question to ask because, and the reason that, you know, that I have been speaking about this and the reason I issued the advisory is that I don't think we have an option here. That if we, if we don't do anything, the trajectory is a poor one and that we will shortchange our children. We will compromise their futures and we won't serve them well as parents and people who should be role models in society because we ourselves are struggling with our mental health. So it does not bode well for the next generation if we continue on our path. But the good news is we don't have to continue on our path. And one of the things that we laid out were steps that 11 different sectors can take, actionable steps to actually address the youth mental health crisis that we have right now. I mean, just to name a couple of them, like you think about schools right now. Many mm-hmm. schools are struggling because they don't have an adequate number of, of counselors. Exactly. In schools. But schools that actually do have counselors are able to really look out for children. And I'm not talking about college counselors who help them. I'm talking about mental health counselors, which is so important. But we also know that schools, when they invest in social and emotional learning curricula, they can help our kids from a preventive standpoint, build that foundation for healthy relationships, for understanding and processing and managing their emotions that all people need. A lot of people don't necessarily get, but it's one of the most powerful tools we can give kids from a young age. Those are schools. We also know that from a treatment perspective, that we can do a lot to expand access to treatment. There are too many children who go years and years and years between the onset of their symptoms and ultimately getting diagnosed. There are too many kids whose parents know they need help but can't get an appointment for them. I'll tell you, that I, I, just the other day, I was visiting a community and I heard the heartbreaking story about a mom who recognized that her young child needed help, but it was taking months to actually get an appointment. She was worried about leaving him home alone because he wasn't old enough to go to school yet, but she had to go to work. And how do you choose between going to work and being able to put food on the table for your child, but then needing to be at home uh, to watch your child because you're worried about their safety? And so she set up cameras in the house to try to be able to watch her child during the day while she was at work. But I was just, my heart broke just listening to that story because what a heart-wrenching choice. This is a choice no parent should have to make to try to set up cams to watch a small child at home who's alone because they can't get the care that they need. Uh, and the support that they deserve. So we can do a lot more to expand access to treatment. I also think that we can do more to demand from our social media companies that we get the data that we need to understand the impact on our kids so that we can best protect them. And then finally, Alyssa, there's something that all of us can actually do. You don't have to be a, a mental health professional or a public health expert to do it. And that's to fundamentally change how we engage with other people on this topic of mental health. When we choose to speak up about our own struggles, we help tear down that stigma around mental health. When we ask people how they are doing and legitimately wait for that answer, when we truly check on people with, without judgment, we create a space, a safe space for them to actually voice what they may be dealing with. As parents, when we open up these conversations with our kids, what we're telling them is, it's okay. If you struggle, it doesn't mean that you're broken in some way. A lot of us do, and it's okay to ask for help. So this is how the culture changes, actually, because culture change is what, you know, eradicating stigma is really about. 
And culture change doesn't happen because the law passes. It happens because people like me and you and our friends and all the people in our country decide that we're going to start thinking differently and speaking differently about an issue. That's what we have to do when it comes to mental health. I've been very open about my mental health struggles. I have a generalized anxiety disorder with PTS and complex PTS. And in my house, and I realize this is a very, I realize I can say this and it's a privilege and that not everyone has access to help. But in our house, I have raised my kids who are 10 and 7 that taking care of their mental health is just as critical as taking care of their teeth. And if we're going to brush our teeth every day so that we don't get cavities, if we're going to go see the dentist for whatever kind of supplements we need for, you know, to make our enamel stronger, if we're going to get braces so that everything is straight, how are we not also saying that this is maybe even more important? than taking care of your teeth. We call it a feelings doctor in my house, and we have check-ins once every three months with both of my kids because the pressure is so much different. By the way, even in sports, the pressures are so much different. And now you look in the stress of everyone, the caregivers and teachers and, and nurses and doctors, and it just feels so overwhelming. Can you tell my listeners, are there things that parents or caregivers should be looking for as maybe warning signs in their children? Well, that's a great question. And the short answer is yes. Here are some signs your child may be suffering. You might see a regression in behavior, separation anxiety, or nightmares. Watch a child's play for signs of excessive fear or disturbing themes. Inject yourself into the play by asking, what if mommy or daddy was there to help? You can suck the air out of a child's feelings of helplessness by having them draw pictures of hope and encouragement and send them to relatives, neighbors, or medical providers. Well, every child is different. We know that sometimes there can be signs that indicate that your child might be struggling uh, with their mental health. For example, sometimes changes or disturbances in sleep can be a sign uh, that something might be bothering your child. Sometimes changes in their eating patterns, maybe a loss of appetite, or sometimes the other way, eating much more than they normally eat, it could be a sign that there may be emotional stress. Changes in their academic performance, changes in their in behavior with you, more short-temperedness that comes out of the blue you know, are there sure sort of a withdrawal, if you will, less interaction, that can be important. Understanding your child's social circle also and social life is important too, because if there's a drop-off, for example, in your child reaching out uh, to friends, people they care about, that can be a sign that they may be withdrawing, something else may be afoot. So these kind of changes, like in your child's pattern at home, with friends, at school, are reasons to inquire, to speak to your doctor, to indicate that you may be concerned about your child. But I'll tell you that one of the most powerful things that we can do as parents is to start engagement with our children around their mental health and well-being before there's a crisis so that there is an open channel for communication. And I love what you did, Alyssa, with your children of, of normalizing this concept of a feelings doctor, of normalizing the idea that feelings are just as important as any other part of our health and well-being, because that's what we have to do from an early age. And I think about the fact that if, if my child hurt their arm, they would feel comfortable coming and telling me. I want our children to also feel comfortable telling us when they're suffering the injuries that we can't see, the emotional injuries, which may lead to other challenges later on if not addressed early. So 
dialogue is so important here. Our, our kids may not always talk you know, or respond to us in the way that we might expect, but it matters to them when we speak up and when we make ourselves available, they take their cues from us. One of my friends told me before I had children, he said, you know, your kids may sometimes listen to what you say, but they'll usually listen to what you do, meaning that you're a role model for them in so many ways. And that means that how we also live our lives and how we prioritize our mental health, how we talk about our mental health, how we invest uh, in our mental health and create the right balance that we need in our life, that matters to our children. It really does. And how can people who are experiencing mental health symptoms get help? That's a good question. And I want to recognize from the outset here that one of the challenges we have in our country is that we don't have equitable access to care. There are a lot of people who have to wait a long time to be able to see a mental health professional. But I'd say there are a few places that you can start. If you have a pediatrician, a doctor for your child, that's always a good place to go if you're concerned about the mental health and well-being of your child. The other place is your school. While we need more counselors in our schools, there are schools that do have counselors now or may have access to community resources also or locations that can provide support for children. And so that can be an important avenue forward. But look, one of the, I think, most important things we also have to recognize in this process is that the relationships our kids have in their lives, these are like buffers. Like, think about it. Like when we have hard times in our life, a lot of us pick up the phone and call a friend, or maybe we get in the car and we go see somebody we love. Think about how much harder it is when you don't have somebody like in your life. And the challenge is that when you're acutely struggling, it's not the easiest time to suddenly go and make a friend. So how we help our kids build healthy relationships really matters. And it's not about how many friends, it's about the quality of those friendships. Do they feel that they can be with themselves, with other people? Can they speak openly about how they're feeling? Are they actually, are kids good at listening, right? And this is so important because there are a lot of people who are not very good at listening because it was never emphasized to them. Think about like how we picture strength, like in society, we think about, and this is, I don't actually have definition of strength, but it comes across so often in narrative and movies and other uh, circumstances, but we think about strength as a person who's like the loudest person, the person who can push to the front of the line, the person who can go to alone and win a race, build a company, win a competition, but do it on their own. But like, how often do we prize and prioritize and celebrate the person who's an amazing listener, who makes people feel like they're heard, that they're respected, that they belong, who helps create community by the power of their presence? Like, we don't think those things is really powerful, but Gosh, I feel like that's an invaluable skill to teach our kids. And you know what? It helps them build good relationships because people like being with people who can actually listen to them and not just talk all the time. So the bottom line is that if you want to help your kids, one of the most powerful things you can do is to support them in building healthy relationships, remembering that the quality is what matters, not the quantity of relationships. And finally, what gives you hope? Gives me hope are my kids and other kids. Because when I look at children, I'm reminded of how we were meant to be. When kids come into this world, they don't come in cynical. They don't come in fearful. They don't come in angry about the state of the world or about a comment somebody made on, uh, to them on social media. Our kids come in with a seemingly endless capacity for joy. Joy at the simple moments. They observe a random spot on the wall and be fascinated by it for forever. And something I saw with my two kids so often when they were babies, um, they can very naturally just give and receive affection from other kids and their parents are not as inhibited as we get to be as we grow older. And I actually think, Alyssa, that's who we are fundamentally, that we were meant to be people who give and receive 
love, compassion, and kindness. That's when we're at our best. That's when we feel the best. It's when we make other people feel the best as well. And so this journey to build a life that is grounded in love and connection, this is not a journey to transform somehow into something that we're not. To me, it's a journey to return to who we fundamentally are. That's what gives me hope that we can make that journey, that we can build a truly more connected society. We can create lives that are more deeply grounded uh, in love and build a culture that's fundamentally about kindness, recognizing that kindness is a virtue. It's also an extraordinary source. Surgeon General Murphy, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for for being a part of the podcast, giving me this time. Thank you, Alyssa. I really enjoyed our conversation. Daily bike rides with his dad have been a constant in Quincy Raven Jackson's life. But when the pandemic hit last spring, a lot of other things changed for the 19-year-old who was then in the gap year between high school and university. It just was so boring. I had nothing to do. Challenging for any young person, but especially so for one with an anxiety disorder. I have difficulty with like social interaction sometimes. So not seeing people, I sometimes forget that how much these people care about me and stuff like that. So it was very lonely. The loss of connection with friends during the pandemic has taken a hard toll on the mental health of teens and intermittent school closures have taken away many of the things that give them joy and confidence. Science is not partisan, and we as a nation need to find a way to shut down those in office who continue to manipulate distrust in government around these issues, or we will never find a way out of the pandemic. Here's the statistic that guts me. In 2020, emergency room visits for teen suicide attempts rose more than 22% compared to the prior year. Over the winter, it increased by nearly 40%. Failing to manage the pandemic, failing to vaccinate our way through it, failing to undertake the necessary steps to reduce transmission is prolonging this crisis. And it will have a generations-long impact on the kids who are growing up during COVID. If we love our children, we have to do these things, and we have to do them now. To be clear, the mental health crisis was brewing in America before COVID. But we can't pretend this disease is in making it so much worse. We all need to do our part together. Without all of the political bullshit that is overwhelming the response before it's too late. If you or someone you love is experiencing suicidal thoughts, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, 800-273-8255. It's free. There's no shame. You would go to the doctor if you were ill or injured. This is no different. We need you here. Please stay. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not Sorry.